Here we are learning the uh, first mimer from Sefer Shmais and Torah R, starting, of course, from the very first page. The mimer begins by quoting the first Pusik in Sefer Shmais that tells us these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Mitzrayim, Yaakov, each man in his household. Now, the Rebbe begins with a seemingly obvious question that the information that is to explain who and to detail who the arrivals are of the Jewish people has already been listed back when they came in real time to Mitzrayim and Parshas Vayigash. So why repeat it here? That's question number one. Question number two, if we look and we do a compare and contrast between the way it's described here and the way it's described back in Parshas Vayigash, we'll notice that in, uh, here in Sefer Shmois, it says, Es uh, and in Vayigash, it just says Yaakov. So the question is, why the difference? What, what is the difference? And back there in Vayigash, it includes Yaakov in the B'nai Yisrael, the children of Israel, which is odd, being, of course, that Yaakov is renamed Yisrael, as we uh, know from the story of his wrestling with the Malach and later Hashem's affirmation that Yaakov is Yisrael, so why is he also described as being part of the B'nai Yisrael? Seems out of place and even illogical. And so the Amimer, as it often does, sort of puts those questions to the side and says that in order for us to come to an answer understanding of this concept, we have to back up and take a deeper and more nuanced look at the entire experience of coming to Mitzrayim, and of course, the slavery and so forth, which begins in the in Sefer Shmois, and what is its objective? What is the purpose of this slavery? So we find that the uh, the descent of the Jewish people into Mitzrayim is described with a twofold statement: Yerad Yeradni, down they went, or went down, they went down, and it is also described that they will be Lecha Gam Olav. Up, they will go up, or I will take you up and you will also go up. So what are the two levels of going into uh, the, the slavery of Mitzrayim and the two levels of exodus and uplift from the slavery of Mitzrayim? So the Rebbe explains in the Mimer that it is not only a reference to the opportunity and the experience of the exodus from Mitzrayim itself, it is an allusion to and a reference to the ultimate uh, uh, exodus, the going out of the Gula Asida, the future of Gula, after which there will never again be a Gulas. And we know this because, as we say, he made Seischami Eretz Mitzrayim, that similar to the days when we left Mitzrayim will be um, our experience when we leave this ultimate Gullus, I will show you wonders. And the analogy being that just like the objective, as Hashem describes, of the exodus from Mitzrayim is, you will serve God on this mountain. This is what Hashem told Meshach Rabbeinu at the snare, the burning bush, that the purpose and the objective of going out of Mitzrayim is not simply to be free from Egyptian servitude. It's not just a freedom from, but it's a freedom to. And that objective is 
to be able to serve Hashem via Matan Torah, via the giving of the Torah on Harsina. And thus, the whole process of the Jewish people being in Mitzrayim, enduring all of the slavery and all of the torment and torture, is in order to make them eligible spiritually to be receptive to the message of Matan Torah. Similarly, the objective of the Gullus that we are experiencing is so that we can receive a Torah as well. Which Torah is that? That is what we refer to as Pneumius Atera. Sometimes we just refer to it as Soid, sometimes as Chsidis. But the concepts that will be available to us through the withstanding of the difficulties of this current Gullus are what enable us, refine us, and make us capable of seeing godliness directly, which is uh, accessed via Pneumis So a little bit of a closer look at the description of the um, slavery and the endurance that the Jewish people uh, lived through in Mitzrayim, and how that resulted in their capacity to be receptive to Matan Torah at Harsinai on Shavuos, and how that becomes a model for the difficulties that we endure during our current goals, and how that enables us and empowers us and it refines us to have the capacity to receive Pneumis Atera, to have access to the, the greater depth of, uh, of uh, uh, our relationship with Hashem that is offered via the teachings of Pneumis Atera. So when we look closely into the um, description of the torment that we adored in Mitzrayim, it has numerous descriptions. And each one of those descriptions, of course, is understood literally as the Jewish people suffered, as well as how it becomes a mechanism through which we can access godliness through the study of Torah. So it says that they embittered their lives, the Yimoru Eskayehem. That is, Torah is often difficult like that. Everyone who's had the experience of opening up a page of uh, Gemara or a page of Chassidus and being completely befuddled and feeling totally lost, what does this even mean? What is this talking about? What is this teaching me? Can understand how we can describe the study of Torah as often being somewhat, quote unquote, bitter. That is, it's difficult to find, just like a bitter food can be sweetened, but only through great effort. Similarly, the challenge of studying and understanding Torah requires great effort for us to pull out the, uh, the message and even the, 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 the simple understanding of it. It also describes us as having gone through avoida kasha, literally harsh labor, and also referring to kasha. A kasha is a difficulty, like the term here as an adjective to describe the labor as having been difficult. It is also when we appear to run into conflicts in Torah, when there are multiple opinions about the same idea, where there seems to be a simple statement and then it's followed by another statement like a perpendicular intersection that seems to completely run into the first statement. These kashas, these difficulties, are a form of the avoida kasha, the, the, the difficult labor that we endured in Mitzrayim. 
Then it tells us that we work with mortar and with bricks. And this is a reference to you recognize this from the morning davening, Rabbi Shmuel and his 13 principles of analysis of the Torah. One of them, a common one, is a kal v'chomer. It references a method of deduction that if a rule applies in a lighter case, a more easily dismissed case, we're still going to enforce this rule. Then, by logic, it is uh, deduced that in a harsher case, we are certainly going to enforce this law. This line of reasoning is known as a kal, light, v'chaymer, harsh. And it is alluded to in the particular description of the form of labor that our ancestors endured in Mitzrayim when they had to build the uh, cities of Pism and Ramses with chaymer and levanim, with bricks and with mortar. And again, it tells us, all the work in the field, all different types of work in the field. In the Talmud, it is a compilation of the Mishnah, which was written at first by Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, the Gemara, the analysis, which was compiled by Ravashi, and there are also many Brises. Now, a Brisa was uh, taught outside of Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, Rabbi Judah the Prince's um, Beis Medrash, his study hall. And therefore, it is comparable to all forms of labor in the field, the field suggesting outside of the civilized city. So the Bryces, which are outside, outside of the standard Mishnah, they too are a significant part of our labor in Torah. And again, they embedded our lives. Torah is our life. We had the Avodah Kasha, the harsh labor, the harsh difficulties that we run into when we appear to have conflicting positions in, um, in, in the analysis of Torah. They work with Chaymer and Levenim, with brick and mortar, which is a reference to Kalvachaymer. They worked out in the field, which is a reference to the Bryces, and that Levenim is. Also, the word, it's similar to the word for white, whitening, just like a dirty garment needs a lot of effort to bring out its whiteness, to rid it of its uh, flecks and stains. Similarly, we have a process called libun hilchasa, a whitening of, a deep analysis of a legal point that requires great effort for us to decipher and pull the law out via all of the different disputes in the Talmud. Often it is not resolved in the Talmud. You ultimately have two positions and it doesn't say which one is the law. That comes later. The Liban Hilchasa is the whitening out. It is the pulling out what is the bottom line instructional that is um, uh, necessary to apply. So just as the literal labor, work, and slavery that our ancestors endured in Mitzrayim was a necessary stage to enable them to receive the Torah, similarly, when we engage in our labor to discover godliness, truth, Torah understanding, because Torah is Hashem's method of communicating with us, as Xidus often points out, it is not only 
a mechanism for instructing us as to who is the owner of a disputed item or what we should do if we put chicken soup in the cereal bowl. It is ultimately the opportunity for us to become connected with Hashem. And that requires a lot of effort and labor. You have to work very hard at it, as we will discuss in greater detail. So our ancestors historically had to work through physical labor in order to become ready to receive the Torah. Because the uh, um, experience of having Torah given to them was predicated on their commitment and devotion, and ultimately on their willingness to be receptive to the message of Torah. Well, in a similar sense, if we will work through Torah, we will um, plow through the variety of disputes. We will overcome the kashas, the seemingly impossible to solve mysteries and complexities. And we will draw out the whiteness that is sometimes lost under the clutter of all the varying opinions and even be willing to engage outside of only the Mishnah, which seems so deceptively simple, and even of the analysis and go even to the Brisa, this will give us, as the Pusik tells us, that in even greater measure than what we experienced when we left Egypt, I Hashem, will show you wonders, that which is much more amazing than only deciphering who is the owner of the talus or what the halacha is when the meat has been put in the dairy bowl, we will discover the essence of Hashem's message that is contained within the Torah, the Pneumius Torah. The Mimer now explores this process. How, in fact, does the labor in the field and this hard work grant us access to Pneumius Torah? So we begin with a little background. A quote that we are familiar with, it is part of our davening, in the Baruch Sha'amar, in the beginning of Psuki de Zimra, where we describe Hashem as Melech Meshubach Mufayer Adeshmei Agodo. Hashem, who is honored and praised till his name is great. Now, the, what, what is the meaning here? What is this teaching us that Hashem's name is great and, and honored? So we begin with the ultimate question what is the objective of a Neshama? that is innate in Shemaim, one with Hashem, being sent down into this physical world. And our explanation is, as Chassidus often says, it is to grant the neshama the opportunity to experience tainug. Now, the word tainug, if you plug it into uh, a dictionary, usually is translated like something like pleasure. But of course, it is not sensory pleasure like food or aroma. But it is the ultimate, which is to be aligned and in our context, of course, that means aligned with Hashem. So when we say the word tainug, or we use the English word pleasure, let's not confuse it with the pleasure of material things. Rather, it is about the ultimate sense of knowing who you are and being aligned with Hashem. That's why the neshama endures coming into this physical world. Now, once it comes into this physical world and it has this opportunity, we call this yerida. Again, another common phrase talked about in Hasidus, that if you were walking down the street and you saw somebody bending down to the floor, you might imagine that they want something that's on the floor. And if you were to interrupt them and say, 
why are you bending down on the floor? And they'll say, well, I want to touch the ceiling. You would ask, why would you bend down to the floor if you want to touch the ceiling? And the explanation is that the person goes down into this coiled position on the floor in order that they not just stand up as they were, for that is of no progress, but that they should then leap up and be able to reach higher than if they just stretched or jumped from the standing position. This is a urida. It appears to be a descent. It appears to be going away from the goal. It is, in fact, a stage to lead them to achieving the goal. You read it to go down the Torah This metaphor illustrates the objective of and the Shama being dispatched down into this physical world, which seems to be a great demotion for the Neshama. It would rather be, of course, aligned with the infinity of Hashem. And we tell the Neshama that its purpose in coming down to this physical world is to give it a greater opportunity to be aligned with the infinity of Hashem. So, of course, the reasonable response is, but won't I be closer with Hashem if I stay in Shemayim? And the answer is, no, it is not. You will become closer with Hashem, just like that person is more likely to reach the ceiling by bending down than if they just stood up tall or tried to jump from that standing position. Now, our opportunity to become closer to Hashem is essentially infinite. Um, because God is infinite, and therefore our alignment, our closeness with Hashem is also infinite. Although we know that it is commonly spoken of that there is simply a lower Ganeidin and a higher Ganeidin, which would seem to suggest there were only two stages, down and up, A and B. However, as the Gemara also tells us, the righteous have no rest, for they are continuously progressing from strength to strength, suggesting that there is an infinite opportunity, even within the, quote, lower Ganeidin, or the, quote, higher Ganeidin, they are not static levels. Rather, the tzaddik can and does continuously enrich his relationship with Hashem, even within each of those levels. And so, too, all of us have this greater opportunity via a greater revelation of godliness. God makes himself more and more accessible to us, which is why it is worthwhile for a neshama to even, chas endure um, Gehenim, endure the purgatory and the repair process that it may necessitate in order to make it more eligible to receive this kind of alignment from this level called Shmei HaGadol, God's great, but better perhaps, infinite name. All of that uh, suffering that a person may have to go through in Ganeidin is not just a test, it is rather a method through which they can discard any um, clutter that they may, their neshama may have accumulated and thus give them that closeness with Hashem. Now, our sages tell us that Avraham Avinu was given a choice. Which would he uh, designate for his descendants? Would he want them to have to endure Gehenim if they sin, or endure the slavery of, uh, uh, in, as, as that form of repair? And he chose servitude. Again, what it teaches us is that just as Gehenim is designed to cleanse 
in order to free up the neshama to experience this closeness with godliness, like the smelting of impurities from silver. Similarly, as Avram's choice of slavery suggests, it will also refine and grant opportunity for experiencing Hashem in a more purified form. Now, the innate limitation of a neshama, because it too is ultimately a created entity, that is, we each have our neshama, my neshama is different than another person's neshama, as such that suggests that our neshamas are limited, they have identity, and thus their limitation limits their capacity to be in an infinite relation with an infinite Hashem. And so how are they, even a neshama, going to be able to be connected with Hashem? Because every entity sees all matter through its own, its own lens. So a limited entity appreciates concepts that are limited because it is through its similarity. And Hashem, of course, is unlimited. So what does Hashem do? Because of his desire to be in a close relationship with us, he, gar- he garbs himself in levushim and kalim, in garments and identifiable tools. Like the Pasuk says, Oita he enwraps himself with light like a, like a cloak. That is, he puts himself in understandable, um, definable, um, attainable tools through which we can understand him. And this is ultimately what Torah is. Torah gives us a handle, a point, a portal of entry so that we can, in fact, have a certain sense of closeness with Hashem. Hashem makes himself accessible to us. So when we appreciate something in Torah, that is Hashem speaking our language, speaking to created beings through the terminology of created entities beginning with Torah, which is, of course, referred to as light, and the light itself suggests that it is something definable. We see this alluded to in the beginning of the story of creation, where the Pusik reads, And a river went forth from Aden to water the garden of Aden, Gan Aden. The Gan, Gimel Nun, is the gematria, the numerical value of 53, which represents the 53 parshias of Torah. That is, Eden, which is the essence of Hashem. That is that alignment with Hashem. But we can't appreciate Eden because we are limited physical beings and we need things in our lingo. And so Hashem dispatches an expression from Eden, that is, the river that goes out, to the garden to something we can appreciate. And the garden, of course, here representing the 53, Gan is 53 numerically, um, the 53 parshits. Now, in order for us to, now on the receptive side, that is Hashem, what Hashem has done, he has made himself accessible and available to us through Torah. So what we have to do is make ourselves a little more like Hashem. Hashem makes himself more limited, that is, accessible through the limitations. And in, for, in order for us to meet him, we have to make ourselves more like Hashem, and that is the quality called bitter. That we have to put aside our own agenda, our own identity, the ultimate limitation, 
this is who I am. We have to put that aside through the surrender of our own independent existence. That's a little confrontational, a little standoffish on me and I'll analyze it. Hashem has overcome his essential quality, which is that he is infinite to make himself available through the finite words of Torah. And we have to respond in kind and overcome our basic character, which is that we are finite and make ourselves more accessible to the infinity of Hashem. And that's why Hashem is described as Shmei HaGobel, his great name, but better perhaps infinite name. Well, how can it be a name and be infinite? A name suggests it's defined. Infinite suggests it's not defined. And that characteristic is called Hashem's Keser Elyon. The crown, that which sits on top of the head, it's not something specific, it's not something graspable. Just as a king's crown embodies his whole community, his whole country, his whole family, his whole identity, Hashem has made himself accessible to us. Now, this helps us understand what it says in the Pusik and Shirashir. In Shirashir, in chapter six, Pusik eight, it says, which translates simply as there are 60 queens and 80 uh, wives, Pelagshim, concubines, and innumerable maidens. Now, the, the Medrash tells us that this is a reference to the Mesechtas of uh, the Mishnah, who are compared to the queen or the woman. Um, why they why and the eighty brises and the innumerable maidens are all of the Torah study uh, that is available to us. Now, why is it compared to a, the male female relationship, the king being Hashem and the queen being the Mishnah? So we explain that just as in the conception of a child, the father's contribution is fleshed out quite literally and given nuance and meaning and development through the mother. Well, in the same manner, the Mishnah starts to flesh out through its analysis that maternal characteristic, which is itself, even the mother, her, the, 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 the fertilization within the mother, the mother's contribution is also the product of the food which it ingested and then developed via the male contribution that stimulates this growth. So the food develops through the body, the mind, and the heart and the liver, and they become eligible to be further extracted and developed into a child. And again, this mirrors the process, this male-female, king-queen relationship mirrors the process through which we take Torah, the message from Hashem, and we decipher it, and we develop it, and we nuance it, and we give it depth and meaning until it develops into a full-grown entity. One without the other, that is the contribution from Hashem, Without the analysis or the analysis without the contribution, which you can't, there's nothing to analyze, we'll get you nothing. It's the two combined that will come together. And we see this further underscored in the Pusik in Shmuel Bey's chapter 22, Pusik Mem, Pusik 40. The Pusik reads, It reads, You have girded me with the strength for battle. You have subdued under me those that rose up against me. Now, that first word, vitazreni, which we translated here as girded to strengthen, also is for the word zora as goyrin, to winnow. Just like in the harvesting of wheat, you have to winnow out the healthy kernel 
from the discarded chaff. So too, in Torah study, we have to um, decipher the kernel of MS, the kernel of the message, the truth, the godliness that is often buried under um, clusters of distraction, of in, in, the incorrect analysis, mistakes, misunderstandings, and so on. And again, just as the Mishnah attempts to uh, I decipher and identify that which is mutter, mutter, of course, literally meaning permissible, more literal, more, more colloquially meaning freed, unchained, eligible. The godliness there can be brought up just as kosher food is mutter. It is an opportunity for one to elevate it in the usage of Hashem. Again, he makes a bracha, he eats the food, he uses the strength, and then go and do a mitzvah. Its kedusha is mutter, it's free, it's accessible. And he elevates the godliness by transforming it in the physical self and vitalizing their primary health functions, the heart, the brain, the liver, and thus engaging in mitzvah activities so that this chain, starting with the mutter, which was discovered via the analysis of the Mishnah, now comes to complete the circuit so that our intellect, our analysis, our study discovered the godliness that was available. We then engage with our physical body to incorporate that godliness to thus make the profit of utilizing that godliness to vitalize our humanity, to engage in mitzvah actions. In contrast, if one, chas consumes something that is usr, usr translated as prohibited, more uh, specifically here, that which is imprisoned, that which is chained, that is its kedusha is trapped. And if one, chas indulged in it, even if they then used its biological energy to do a mitzvah, that godliness cannot be free. It cannot be um, elevated back to godliness even though its biological energy, its nutrients, empower the person to do mitzvahs. The same is true with the clothing we wear, the homes that we live in. These are more makif, they surround us. They also, though, empower us to do mitzvahs. Uh, they can be uplifted uh, and utilized in the service of Hashem. Again, how? When we engage with the quality of chachma. Chachma, as we explain. It's not about genius or about our IQ. It is about the bit of the willingness to truly learn something, not simply to pile on more information, but to be genuinely receptive to a concept that is completely outside of our knowledge base, which can be very discomforting, disequilibriating. And that is the product. The only time we can truly learn is if we are willing to put aside what we already know and overcome the temptation say, yeah, yeah, I know that one already. It's just something similar to what I already learned. But to truly put aside our identity, our self, our yeshes, our uh, self-identified character, and be genuinely receptive to something new, that is the quality that transforms something from being self-serving to accumulating information to becoming God-serving. Again, Hashem goes through, quote, the effort to embed himself within the understandable, we go through the effort to overcome our 
um, character in order to make ourselves receptive it, from being serving of self, what am I going to get out of it, to serving of Hashem and being alone? Like it says in Micha, Perik Vav, Pasuk Beis, Chapter 6, Pasuk 2, they tani moiste aretz, which translates literally as the mighty ones are the founders of the earth. That word mighty ones can also be rearranged in its lettering to spell the word tanoim, which means the authors of the Mishnah. They create a, an environment. And as Dovid Melech writes in Tillim, in, in Perak Memtes, Pasuk Aleph, in chapter 89, verse 1, that is the wisdom of the Eitanim, of those who are so strong in the study of Torah. And this helps us understand why Torah is compared to a queen specifically, because the queen's constant alignment with the king producing that dynamic of ma, the infinite, with ba, the analysis, this dynamic of an abstract level of godliness, coupled coupled with a, an immediate level of godliness, this produces the, which is the product of chachma, that is the bittel, that allows two to become one, allows for there and creates the opportunity for there to be this unification and thus this level of godliness that can be experienced only through the combination of the human and the divine. Okay, we are learning the uh, Mimer on the Parsha of Shmois, Staff Mem Tesam Beis. And a reminder that we're working off a Pusik from Shira Shirim that says there are 60 queens and 80 concubines and young maidens without a limitation. These 60 queens are a reference to the books of the Mishnah, the teachings of the Mishnah. The 80 concubines are the teaching of the Brises. Reminder, the word Brisa means outside. These were lessons that were taught outside of the base Medrash of Rebbe. And the Almas, the young virgins, equal the laws which are innumerable. So the Alter Rebbe continues and he tells us that the Tanoim, who are the authors of the Mishnah, and that word Tanoim is the same letters as the word for Etanim, or strength, that they received their lessons directly from the quality called Chachma, the undefined and um, purest level, which is described in Tanya as Yesoid Abba. This is like the father's contribution, the development of a child. Uh, similarly, we, ta- we are told in Pirkei Avos that Moshe received the Torah from Sinai, and that means he received it completely, to the point that he passed it on to the Nevi'im and the men of the Great Assembly, that they received this Chachma directly from Moshe Rabbeinu, and therefore their uh, rulings in the Mishnah are without dispute, they are not the product of analysis or speculation and so forth, like the Gemara in Sukkah on Daf Chav Ches on Aleph, page 28a, tells us that Rebeleza was asked 30 questions, and he simply responded that he had received answers to 12 of them. That is, he did not deduce them and decipher the answer. He simply had the direct information that answered 12 of them, whereas 18 of them, the other 18, he did not have the, he had not received the answer to. And again, all of this underscores this quality of Bittal, simply that they received it. We find a similar story with Akavi ben Mahalel. He says, I heard this from people, again, what they received, what they learned, which is the idea of 
ayin and bitol mamish in contrast to analysis and deciphering and so forth. And this is what Moshe Rabbeinu brought into the world when he said, Vanachnu ma, what out we? This is a reference to Moshe Rabbeinu's response when the Jewish people were complaining to him uh, one of the many times. And he said, Vanachnu ma, why are you complaining to me? But if we just highlight that phrase, it reads, what are we? So then the Alter Rebbe goes on to explain that this also is a reference to the quality called ma, mad, and ban. So a little background. We know that Hashem's name, Yudke Vavke, if we spell it out with what was called Miloy, whereas we take each letter, and as we know, every Hebrew letter has a name. Aleph is Aleph Lamed Fe. You phonetically spell out the title of each um, word name. So when we get to the different letters that spell out Yudke Vavke, there's a variety of ways that we can phonetically spell out their name. Specifically, it centers around the hey. How do you spell out the word hey? Do you spell it hey, hey, or hey, Aleph? And certainly this will affect the total numerical value. Of course, the gematria, uh, every Hebrew letter having a numerical value. So if you spell it with a hey, if you spell out the word hey, 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 and of course you have it twice in Yudke Vavke, you're going to have a drastically different gematria than if you spell it hey, Aleph. And the same is true with Vav, whether it's spelled Vav Aleph Vav or Vav Vav. For our matters here, we're talking about the quality called Ma, which is of greater revelation. It's when we you get to 45 Ma, when you spell out Hey as Hey Aleph, in contrast to Ban, which is spelled Hey Hey. So Hey, the Mem Hey, the 45 Gematria which is also the word for what. So just as when a person says what, it's limitless. That is, they are genuinely receptive. It is a true total bittle to say what, no preconceived notion. It also represents a, a level of godliness that can decipher and find the, the kedusha, the holiness that is otherwise trapped in a lesser level of revelation as represented by Ban 42, which is, the product of a differed spelling out of the letter names of Hashem's, uh, each of the letters of Hashem's name. So again, this Moshe Rabbeinu brought this quality, just like when a person is genuinely curious and comes with no preconceived notion. They genuinely come from a place of ma. They genuinely genuinely come from a place of complete uh, innocence and purity without any uh, agenda or preconceived notion or presumptions, they can find greater clarity, like Moshe Rabbeinu was drawn forth from the water, which is not the case where we have, for example, with Elio, that is the gematria of 42, which is only an external bittel. It's a willingness to learn something new, but not a total bittel. And that's why Elio's entire body, but including his body, including his chitzenius, went up to Shemayim. In this context, it suggests a somewhat of a lesser level. And that's why the laws that are enumerated by the Tanoim in the Mishnah, the Mishnah authors, are direct godliness. They are drawn directly down after this mirror, this clarity of godliness that is instilled within them through the quality of Ma, again, genuine receptivity, called Chachmi Ilah, a true Chachma, a true willingness to be, uh, to be taught. Like our sages say, both opinions are the words of Hashem, and therefore, they, they can have some sort of discussion. 
But as our, the, the Gemara tells us, that the Geula comes about specifically through Mishnah, that we will be ingathered from amongst the nations through the study of Mishnah, that the being ingathered from amongst the nations is similar to the idea of deriving the halacha from within the confusion of all of the particulars. And we're seeking for that truth. So to Mishnah is like the ingathering, it's in the infusion of godliness into a, 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 a state of confusion. Similar to the idea of tzedakah, that tzedakah is the idea of taking money, which can be used for something purely material, and discovering its godliness. And this is part of the description of the time of Mashiach, where we are described, or Mashiach is described as the ingathering of every individual, one by one, again, like the Mishnah derives or, or, or calls out the godliness, the truth, the halacha, from within the complexity of whatever the real-life situation is. We move on to the next paragraph. We'll begin the next quote from that Pasuk and Shir Hashirim. Uh, that says, Pilag Shemelu Brysis, that the Pilegish, the concubine, represents the Brysis. What is the analogy? That just as the relationship between the king and the Pilegish is sporadic and more sort of secretive, so too is the relationship of the Brysis. Their clarity is less so. It's more almost hit or miss type of thing. Like we say that any mission that wasn't taught by Rabbi and Rabushi is not considered a Mishnah. That is, it's not been clarified. So much so that we know that uh, during the Shleishim after Moshe Rabbeinu's passing, we lost 3,000 halachas because the clarity was not that clear. Again, if they did not have this type of influence like the king would have on the queen, which is more constant, that quality of the king, which represents the male contribution, the development, which is that infinite quality of chachma. The Pelegish is missing that to the same extent, and therefore there is less clarity. Like we know that the, they come only from the level of Bria, from a lesser awareness of Hashem, in contrast to the mission which comes from Atzilis, where like the king and the queen relationship is that much more intense and unified, like the relationship of Chachma from Atzilis that has greater clarity. And in contrast, the clarity that comes in Bria, in the Pelegesh, and the concubine is less so. But in the, the and therefore, the Mishnahs that were not taught by Rabbi and Rabbi are not drawn down from this level of Atzilis, and therefore, they cannot be relied upon as being absolutely true. Um, they, they lack that kind of absolute yichud, that absolute unification comparable to the king and the queen that uh, the Mishnah lacks. And that's this lesser degree that we find with the uh, with the Bryces and why they are compared to the more secretive and uh, sporadic relationship or unclear relationship between the king and the Pelegesh, unlike the indisputable Mishnas, which are more like the profound absolute relationship uh, between the king and the queen, which is beyond any form of reproach. This is alluded to in what the uh, we're taught that it says Michal, would occasionally offer. I mean, there's a, there was an occasional, like an occasional lesson from the Brisa that he would occasionally offer the neshamas of the tzaddikim. And again, it being less permanent, like the lesser permanence of the Pelegish. On the final right-hand paragraph on this page, it tells us again, the next quote, almost a Nisbar, young maidens without number. This refers to the halachas. These are the statements of the Amaroyim, the authors of the Gemara that, um, like the Gemara itself says, 
when somebody raised a question, one person said this, another said that. So the Gemara says, so Gabra, Gabra, there's two different opinions. There, you cannot raise a legitimate conflict between two different opinions. They simply have two different opinions. Why are they compared to Almas, to these young girls? Because they have yet to be uh, transformed and elevated by the influx of the male contribution, the Chachm Ilah, just like these young unmarried girls. They don't yet have this level of, um, uh, of infinity that the king brings to the queen. And he brings even to the Pilegesh. He has not yet at all been brought. And that's why there is darkness in the Talmud, that is confusion, conflict, and so forth, because they are not yet uh, been um, uplifted by the Chachmila. However, they are pursuing the king, as uh, David Amalekh writes in Tilim, that they are, they are pursuing the king, they are readying themselves for this type of clarity, like the young maiden who's preparing herself to be united with the king, that they are a keli, they are receptive to this level. And that's why they are they are ready. The Gemara is ready to be exalted, uplifted, and clarified via that contribution. And this is what is described earlier in the Mimer as the libon hilchasa, the whitening that is we take uh, of the law. That is, we take a a, 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 cir- a circumstance. There's a lot of confusion. There's all kinds of factors going on, and we have to whiten it out. We have to remove the chaff, and we have to find what is the halacha. So this process is achieved via the questions and answers, like the development of the fetus that combines the masculine and the feminine quality. The chachmila becomes inserted into the circumstance, and we find via this process the innate godliness, like we do in the Gemara, where we have questions, and we have answers, and counter-questions, and so on and so forth, all in pursuit of finding what is, in fact, the godly objective, the the Ratzon HaElyeh in God's will in this particular circumstance. And we find this continuously throughout the Gemara, where we're seeking this idea of drawing in this divine clarity, this whiteness, which is clarity. This is the quality of Keser, the quality that is even greater than Chachma, like a crown, sits upon the head. It is God's ultimate will, which drives his intellect. And when we are faced with a circumstance and we're trying to find who is the rightful owner of a disputed object, what we should do with uh, a law in Kashris and so forth, what we are seeking out is, can we identify the whiteness of godliness there? This is further underscored by the idea that the Klein Gadol wears white on Yom Kippur, because the whole idea of our Aveda is like the Klein Gadol to find that whiteness. We're now on the first new paragraph on the top left-hand side uh, of the page. So now we can understand the statement of the Zion that tells us that all of Torah and mitzvahs is designed to correct the secrets of Hashem's name. We know that there are seven names of Hashem which we are prohibited from erasing. They are Kael and, and um, all the different names of Hashem. Uh, and each one of them represents a different manner through which Hashem expresses himself through the Midas here in this world. That is, since Hashem is innately infinite, it is an or insight, even the light that Hashem expresses, which is describable as light. It still reflects the characteristic of Hashem that it is infinite. Hashem is not a composite of character traits, yet he wishes to express himself through the character traits. 
So, for example, since Hashem wants to create a world based on chesed, so he compresses himself and expresses himself through the midah of chesed. And that is represented when Hashem expresses himself through the name Kale. Like we know that a person's name is really not reflective of his identity, as evidenced by the fact that you can have two people with the same exact name, and they're completely different. It's simply a way that we distinguish one person from another. He doesn't use this example, but it's essentially like a phone number. Your phone number doesn't really say anything about you. Yes, it may tell people where your phone is registered or some other shallow aspect of it, as your name might. You know, we have ethnic names and we have names that are indicative of certain cultures and so forth, but it doesn't really tell you very much about the person. In contrast, Hashem's name tells a lot about him. That is, the name which Hashem chooses to express himself with is an insight to us as to which aspect God is coming to us uh, in that circumstance. So Kale is when God is coming through us in the way of chesed, of limitlessness. When it's Elohim, he's coming to us in the manner of gevura and so forth. And therefore, in order for Hashem to express himself, for example, to build this world on chesed, as is his request, his objective, so Hashem makes that available to us through Torah and mitzvahs. And we, through the Torah and mitzvahs, discover the godliness that is otherwise going to be hidden in this world. So Hashem expresses himself through Torah and mitzvahs. Our job is to discover godliness here in this world. We discover the godliness of chesed through the chesed mitzvahs. We discover the godliness of gevura through the gevura mitzvahs. Torah and mitzvahs become our mechanism for accessing godliness. However, our ultimate goal is not just to access the individual aspects of Hashem, but rather, as we alluded to in the, or it's mentioned in the first page of the Mimer, is Shmei HaGadol. You recognize it from the davening. Our objective is to draw out that, the, the, the essential name or identity of Hashem, not just the specifics, the Ein Seif of Hashem, that there is a combination of names of Hashem. Like we say in the davening, L'Shem Yichud Kuchibrichu V'Shchinte, we want to bring together even Havaya, the godliness that is outside of this world, with Adne, which is the godliness within this world, which is to draw down the Havaya, which is essentially what we call Seviv Kolamim, it surrounds this world, you can't capture it, you can't put your finger on it or identify it. And we want that to be paired with Adne, which is the godliness the way it is in this world. And the mechanism to do that is through Torah mitzvahs, which draws down not only the specifics of Hashem's kindness or his orderliness, his ches or his gevura, it also draws down Shmei HaGadol, Meshubach, Mefoyer, Adeyat Shmei HaGadol, as you recognize from the davening, that it is God's name, which is praise, which is glorified. It is great, not great as in big, but great as in infinite. So ultimately, not only are we bringing down godliness as it relates to that particular activity, it is bringing down godliness as is in its essence, which is the infinite. But again, uh, uh, via the mechanism of the names of Hashem. And this is how we fulfill this dictate of the Zayar that we are able to be masaking, to correct or to organize the depth, the secret of Hashem's name, that it should be manifest down here through all those names. So not only that this is an act of chesed, but it becomes a godly act of chesed. And this is what Hashem told Avram in the beginning of the parsha, the era, the next week's parsha, that he says, I appear, I'm sorry, he told Moshe, that Hashem says, I appear to Avram, 
but he did not know the infant name of Hashem because that name is only available through Matan Torah. Torah, even though it deals with very particular activities and rules and directives, which capture a very specific, particular expression of godliness, it ultimately gives us access to the infinity of godliness. And this is what Hashem told Moshe, that Avram did not have that experience because Avram didn't have Matan Torah. It is only through Matan Torah that we are able to have this experience. And this is what the Pusik means when it says we have been brought close to our king, to his great name. Because in order for there to be the great name that is the infinity of Hashem, that is exclusively through the Nisham of the Jewish people. And this is how we can be certain that we will never be severed from Hashem because of his infinite name. I mean, the word is Godol, which is commonly translated as great, but in our context, it truly means infinite, unlike the specificity of the Midas. And like it says, uh, what can we do for this great name? That there are three entities that are intertwined, the Jews, Torah, and Hashem. And the mechanism through which we become connected to Hashem is through Torah. And that's why it, the, 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 we're taught that David HaMelech brought Torah from above with Hashem, that Hashem should bring himself, he should lower himself to become engaged with the Jewish people. And in this way, we draw down the infinity of Hashem through the quality of Chachma, which again is not about our IQ, but it's about uh, our receptivity to the genuinely infinite, again, not predisposed to our own ideas uh, or see how it fits to what I already think and adds on, but to truly have that bittle to be receptive to an idea that is completely outside of anything that I am already comfortable with. We're now in the final paragraph where the Alter Rebbe starts to address the basic question. You recall that the Mimer began with the question, why does Sefer Shmois begin with a detailing of the names of Yaakov and his children who came to Mitzrayim, already back in Pasha's Vayigash, when they, in, in real time, came down to Mitzrayim, we are told their names, each one of them and the tribes and so forth. So why is it repeated here? So the Alter Rebbe says, now we understand why it says, that the Shemois, the names, are like this idea that David made a name for Hashem. Like the Zayar says, that he brought the name of Hashem, Havaya, that is the true name that captures the infinity of Hashem, down here, via this infinite light, which is the quality of Chachma, which again is not about how many, how much uh, scholarship we have. It is rather about our receptivity. It brought this quality of the Yud of Shem Hashem, this Chachmila, down here via the Hey. And then if you envision the four letters of Hashem's name, Yud, and then Hey, and then Vav, and then Hey. And Hey represents the spoken word, the soft spoken word, the breath that is elicited when you say the letter hey, that it gives forth this breath, that we bring, our job is to bring the Shemus of Hashem even into Mitzrayim, even into the most disgusting of lands, down here into this physical world, as it's explained in the Geras HaKodesh. And so too in Pasha Shemus, it tells us that the Bnei Yisrael draw down, they bring a revelation of godliness into this world. And that's why, and again, this answers the question, why does the Parsha have to recount the names of Yaakov and all his children? We know that already. Because now we understand that Yaakov and Yisrael, I'm sorry, Yaakov and Rachel, and also Yisrael and Rachel. Remember Yaakov, of course, having both names. 
and all of their children who are rooted in Atsilas. They are rooted in the spiritual. That's why they didn't want to go to Mitzrayim, because Mitzrayim was completely incongruent with their identity. And that's why specifically they are meant to go to Mitzrayim, to bring that infinite level of godliness into the finite characteristic and even the contradictory characteristics of Mitzrayim. So they bring this level down to illustrate the unity of Hashem's infinity, like Yaakov and Rachel and Yisrael and Rachel, which is, again, the unity of Havaya, the level of godliness that represents a quality that is not capturable by this physical world, and the quality called Adne, the dominant, the authority of Hashem, which is represented by Rachel, because the source of the Neshama of Yaakov comes from Havaya. And the source of the neshama of Rachel comes from Adne. And that's why the Jewish people are compared to Rachel, like a Rachel, like a sheep, uh, which again, the Hebrew word Rachel means sheep, but of course it also is a reference to Rachel herself. And, and this is all of the Jewish people. So again, this is the point that we're the Jewish people, we are God's messengers, whether we are in Eretz Yisrael, in a place of natural holiness, or we are in Mitzrayim, a place of antagonism to, to holiness. And the same is true in why the 12 tribes have to be enumerated, because they represent the 12 different permutations of the four-letter name of Hashem. If you have a four-letter word, so there is a formula of the no, X, which equals the number of letters in the word, times X minus one, four times three is 12. So there's 12 different ways that you can combine those four letters, which each one of the tribes represents a different form of that. And this is why the tribes are described not just by Ruvain, but Haruveni with the hey prefix and the yud suffix, Hashimoni with the hey prefix and the yud suffix, Hashem's name, that is Hashem inserts the tribes into his name, his yud ke vav ke name, to illustrate that each of the tribes represent a different permutation of God's identity. And now we understand why it says, These are the names of the tribes who came, because it is the idea of bringing the names through Torah, that Torah gives us access to godliness, godliness, like a name gives us access to a person. And it is the drawing down of the 60 queens, and the, which are the, the Mishnahs. And each one of them is a combination of the six, the letter Vav. We said Yud is Chachmilah, the infinity, infinite quality of Hashem. He is the spoken word. The Vav of Hashem's name is represented in the six orders of the Mishnah, Vav being the, letter, the, the number six, um, as is explained. Like we say, these are the um, counts of the material. The accounting of the Mishkan is what was, was drawn down from the highest level through the name of Membes 42, again, which goes back to the different ways in which we can identify um, and spell out the name of Hashem. And Ve'ela, the first word, is the Gematria 42, which preps the Shmois, the names, which are the individual manners of manifestation of godliness. That Yaakov, who represents the infinity of Hashem, who combined with Rachel and by extension all of his wives to create the Jewish people. And the Jewish people represented by the 12 tribes, each one of them being a different method of expressing God's identity in this physical world. 
have to come down into Mitzrayim, into a place of Gullus, into a place of antagonism in order to bring godliness there. And even so, ultimately, we will see that there is a godly side to Mitzrayim. As we know, Mitzrayim means narrow, and it represents the narrowing of the throat, which is, again, uh, illustrates how we take something from the intellect of the head, and it manifests itself through the throat, figuratively speaking, into the heart, to our character, and ultimately, from the heart, it's distributed to our behavior. So while it's true that initially, the Eila, through this quality of godliness, Shmois, the different uh, touch points, portals of entry of God to godliness via the Torah and mitzvahs, like names are a mechanism through which we can connect and call the attention of another person, of Yaakov, who represents the infinity of Hashem, who unified with his wives to create the tribes. And each one of them individually represents a different method of bringing godliness into the world, into this world through Torah and Tefillah that even though they went down into Mitzrayim and it could not be seen there in Mitzrayim, Mitzrayim was not transformed. On the contrary, ultimately they enslaved us. Um, Yet there is still that capacity for us to be rescued. It was through the experience of Mitzrayim that we were able to receive Torah. And ultimately we will be able to elevate the godliness that was concealed within Mitzrayim, which was impacted by the arrival of Yaakov and his sons, and thus to transform it into a good and abundant land, representing the revelation of the godliness that has been secreted away within Mitzrayim as a consequence of the Yaakov godliness with his wives, through his children, representing each of the individual methods through the names, the access points of godliness, that is, through Torah and mitzvahs, which impacted Mitzrayim and transformed it, and will transform it from a place of antagonism into a place of godliness. This concludes the this page of the Mimer.